0: Our Gospel reading today comes from John chapter 20. Um, you can find that on the page 1020, 1077 on, in the Hymn Bible, and starting in verse 19, going through verse 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And when you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them, And Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hand, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here And see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the Gospel of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Well, we are in chapter 20, as Jess just read. Thank you for that, Jess. And to begin this sermon today, I'm actually gonna step ahead in time a little bit and read out of a passage of Acts. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Acts of the Apostles follows the Gospel of John. It's actually the works of the Apostles as they're being sent out into the world, sent out into this world of tribulation and, and, and war and brokenness. And they're sent out to proclaim the Gospel that Jesus came to proclaim and establish. I'm gonna look at Acts chapter five, because there's a situation that happens here where the disciples are out proclaiming the gospel and they get arrested and they're brought in before the religious leaders because they thought they had put to death this Jesus and his movement. And as they do this, this Pharisee, a very respected man named Gamaliel, I'm gonna read now, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, he stood up and he gave orders to put the men, the disciples, outside just for a little while. And then he said to the leaders of Israel, uh, to, to, to the religious leaders, he said this. He said, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. And he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is of the undertaking, if it's an undertaking of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel was approaching this with wisdom, knowing history, and also having a trust in God that if this was a movement of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. Gamaliel also only mentions two of these would-be messiahs or false messiahs. But the truth is, I was talking to Dave about this this morning, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of men and, and, and leaders claiming to be A Messiah figure claiming to be the ones who were going to deliver Israel out of their troubles from the oppression you might not know somebody uh, oh and by the way that that's that uh, um, Theodos that was mentioned by Gamaliel he's also mentioned by the the historian Josephus and he tells a little more of the story and what what he what he was told or what, what Theodos did was he got a bunch of followers to follow him to the Jordan River and what he was going to do was he was going to part the Jordan River on his command. And so he had 400 followers come up, and when, when the Romans heard about this, and, and, well, of course, the Jordan River did not part, the Romans came, saw this big movement, arrested him, killed the followers, killed Theodos, and put his head on a stick and marched it around. And that was it for him. But there were also one, Simon Simon Bar Goya, who was a little more famous, and another one, Simon Bar Kokhba, who was actually named to be a messiah by by one of the uh, respected rabbis in the second century. There were a number of would-be messiahs, a number of men and leaders who called themselves messiah. And yet, when they were brutally killed, their movement was done. Their movement died with them. But the point of this is the reason for so many messianic movements throughout that time in history was that the people were looking for, hoping for, and longing for deliverance. There was a real longing, a real hurt. Israel never really came out of their exile completely. They were still under the oppression of the Roman government. They didn't have what they were longing for. So, whenever they would hear of a new leader, a great victory, the possibility of freedom, imagine the joy, imagine the hope that they would be feeling. Hope is alive again until that leader is finally brutally executed again. And all hope dies. And they sit in fear, in unrest, some lingering, dangling hope that someone else would finally come and be that one, be their Messiah. Their anointed one, their Christ. For the disciples of Jesus, it appeared that his movement was over as well, didn't it? He was put to death on the cross, crucified, humiliated. And Thurman preached last week on that resurrection morning when, when that tomb was empty, and Mary saw Jesus, and she goes and tells the disciples, but yet we 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 enter into this, this passage here with the disciples still seeming to be not sure. In fact, we read of one who definitely was not sure. What we see in today's passage is the resurrected Jesus, though, coming and appearing to his disciples. And in their fear and their unbelief, Jesus reassures them and reassures us today by providing three things He provides peace in this passage, He provides proof, and He provides a purpose not only for his disciples, but for us as well. So let's pray before we get into this. Father God, may these words that I preach today, Lord may you, direct our, may you direct my words and Lord may you direct our ears to hear what you would have us hear today. No matter what is said, no matter what truths are proclaimed, we can only hear by your grace and by your mercy. Please give us ears to hear, calm our fears and breathe new life of purpose into our hearts and into our church. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so on on, uh, verse 19, we have, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were. Okay, so imagine these disciples, they are sitting in this room. It doesn't say exactly where they were, but they were gathered together. And I'm sure they were sticking together quite a bit for some time. But notice here that there was a fear of the Jews. Think about this. The Romans just put Jesus to death, crucified him, and humiliated him, like I said. Now, if there's any hint of this movement having any more breath in it, what do you think they're going to do with Jesus' followers? They had a right to be afraid. And so they locked the doors, they locked the gates. All this to show, number one, of the fear that they had, but also to give an insight into the miraculous way Jesus entered into this scene. And the first thing Jesus gives to them and gives to us in the midst of these fears and these these worries is peace. And it's the first thing he says to them. He says, peace be with you. Now, that's a common greeting. Shalom, peace be with you. But notice the fact that John repeats this three times in this passage. Anytime you see a repetition like this, it means something. The author is wanting to say something here. And Jesus spoke about peace, and the first thing he says to these fearful disciples locked in this room is, Peace be with you. Remember in John 14, maybe they recalled when he said, My peace I give you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives do I give you this peace? Perhaps they're also calling to mind John 16, 33, where Jesus says, I have said these things to you. He gave him this teaching, and as he's talking about leaving them and going off to die, he's saying troubling things to his disciples, to his followers, and he says to them in 1633, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. It's a mess out there, and that's not going to change. You're going to go from here, and you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. Take heart, because I have overcome the world. He says that even before he died on the cross, before he rose from the dead. He says, take heart, because I have overcome the world. That's why Jesus is able to come to his fearful disciples and say, peace be with you. Fear steals our peace. And Jesus comes to calm our fears with his peace. One commentator says that Jesus shalom here on this Easter evening. Remember, it's still the first day of the week. Jesus shalom here, his greeting on this Easter evening, is the complement of his it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. Jesus is giving them the assurance before he says anything else, that you have my peace, and it's here now. And now he reinforces this peace in this passage here. He reinforces this peace with proof. Verse 20, when he had said this, what did he do? He showed his disciples his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I think that's an understatement. I think they had to be elated. Can you imagine? Because at first, is this a ghost? What are we seeing here? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? And then he shows them the wounds. Yes, it's our Lord. This was really him. The wounds, the same wounds used to crucify and kill him, are still visible in his resurrected body. And I think that is, of course, so that they could identify him. Those were not going to go away, but they had no effect on him anymore except to testify of who he was and who he continues to be. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And then he says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's some interesting kind of weird stuff there. I always thought that that just seemed kind of weird that he breathed on them and then said, receive the Holy Spirit. So what's happening there? Well, first of all, he's saying, remember, the Father sent me. And as the Father sent me into this world to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim victory over sin, to proclaim victory over all the brokenness and to usher in the kingdom of God, so I'm now sending you. Now, it says he breathed on them. Some, some pastors say he breathed. This is just, there's no real translation for breathing on them necessarily. But he breathed. He let out a breath. And it seems that if we look at John, if we remember John's writing all through the beginning, what he, the very thing John starts off with in this gospel, do you remember in chapter 1, verse 1? in the beginning in the beginning what does the very first book of the bible begin with in the beginning john is going back to creation you see because what happens with the resurrection nt wright has a book called the day the revolution began he says the day of that resurrection was the day of a revolution the day new creation began that jesus was ushering in a new creation And he was the prototype. He is the one, the new living creature who overcame death, who now goes through walls and who is able to eat and yet be in different places in ways that we can't understand. He's showing us what the new creation is and what we are to hope for. But also this this idea of breath and spirit. It was read earlier. How did God give life to the man, to Adam? He breathed. He breathed his spirit into him. And this is a way of of John perhaps hearkening back to that and saying, Jesus, the new creation, is coming and breathing his new life into us and then sending us. God God breathed that life into Adam and then he said, be fruitful and multiply to him and Eve. Go and reflect my image. Jesus, breathed new life. Breathe the Spirit. This isn't Pentecost, okay? So this, isn't, this is more of a foreshadowing of the Spirit that is to come. But he sent them into a troubled world. He's saying, I'm giving you new life now as the Father has sent me. Now I'm sending you. He sent them into a troubled world. He didn't clean everything up. He didn't solve all the problems, and he's not telling them to do the same thing. He didn't make them unassailable. Remember, he said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to suffer. But I'm breathing my new life into you. And that new life is going to be the peace that you need. Calling them, sending them to bear their crosses, to bring the message of the kingdom of God to the world, a world, by the way, that John reminds us that God so loved. In chapter 3, sending them into a world full of brokenness, a world full of sin, a world that needed forgiveness and the restoration of a Savior. A world that God so loved and a world that God still loves. And as Jesus declared this kingdom and the forgiveness of sins, he's sending them, he's sending us to do the same. And he says another strange thing here, doesn't he, in in 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now, Jesus wasn't giving the disciples the authority to forgive as God forgives. or to withhold sins based on their judgment. If they didn't like somebody, they were just gonna not, not offer forgiveness. They would just, that wasn't what he was doing. And, and I think knowing Jesus, knowing the writings, knowing the, 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 the apostles and how they proclaim the gospel, we know that's not what he was doing there. But it does seem strange when you read that, doesn't it? But he was calling them to proclaim forgiveness in the bondage of sin. And they were to maintain the message of Christ's overcoming death in the world. They were to go out and we are to go out to proclaim the forgiveness that God offers. And what he's saying is forgiveness is still the same. Forgiveness happens when there is confession of sin. When, when I am their Lord. When they make me their Lord. But you are now the ones to proclaim it. I've already done it. And now you're the ones to proclaim it. An example of that is in John chapter 9 when, when the Pharisees were upset because Jesus healed this blind man. And they just didn't want to believe it. And they just wanted to find something wrong. And Jesus told them, Because you are blind, your sin remains. And at the same time, he would tell people, Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is telling us to go out and proclaim that same forgiveness that he offers. Because that forgiveness still works the same. When people call upon the Lord and confess their sins, he is still righteous and just to forgive their sins. So is it done in heaven as we proclaim it here. We're proclaiming the gospel and he's saying it is true. So now we, we come to a place where Jesus gives further proof. This passage did not really follow my points in order the way I wanted it to, but I. <laughs> Nevertheless, we have probably the most famous story of proof in the Gospels with Thomas. And Thomas, you know, Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas. Thomas is known. Only for this passage, and I, and I get it, and I understand why, but Thomas is also mentioned in other places In John. John mentions him in chapter 11 when, when Jesus said that we're going to go see Lazarus because Lazarus has died, and, and Thomas says, well, let us go and die with him. And also in chapter 14, when Jesus says, before Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it's Thomas that says, Jesus, show us the way. We don't know the way. How do we know where, we're gonna, where, where you're going? We don't even know the way. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas is highlighted in those two two passages, but this this is all Thomas here. Verse 24, now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. You should have been here, Thomas, he was here. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know, I think about Thomas. I think he's probably seen a lot of movements that gave him hope. I think he saw a lot of times where something looked like it was going to work. And relief was finally coming. And I think Thomas might have put his rest in that too much. He's like, uh-uh. I'm not getting fooled again. Can you relate to that? I sure can. One more time, you're going to tell me this guy's going to be the Messiah? Uh-uh. And you're telling me he came back from the dead? I, I, it's not just going to be seeing. i got to touch. If he showed you his wounds, I want to touch those wounds. Do you struggle in similar ways as Thomas? Thomas here is struggling and wrestling with his faith. And I think this is to be commended. I think it's important that we don't despise someone's struggle with their faith. Someone's wrestling. Because that struggle with faith is actually the sign of a desire. You know, it would have been different if Thomas said, I'm done. I'm done struggling with it. I, I don't even want to be here. It, it's, it's so hard to talk to somebody about Christ when they say, I don't even care. It doesn't matter to me. But when somebody starts asking questions, but like, like well, well tell me about this, or, or how is it that, that Jesus is, is God, and yet there's... Man, there's some struggle happening there. There's something something somebody wants to know. It's a struggle that there is desire. And I think the greater the struggle we have, perhaps the greater the desire we have. That's where our faith begins. You want to believe. But faith comes from the resolution and the satisfaction of the evidence that's presented to you. But that satisfaction takes time those struggles can be long those struggles can be frustrating watching somebody we love can be very frustrating watching them try to struggle with their faith and know if they're going to believe in God or not or maybe they do and then they fall back and it's just this 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 ongoing struggle but we pray that the struggle continues that God leads them through the struggle Think about the relationships in our lives that grow deeper because we stay in there and struggle. Because we deal with the hard stuff and we stay in it and we struggle, but when those parties stay, forget it, it's done. There is no more. It's the struggle. Some of you here knew Francis Schaefer personally. I think that's really cool. Francis Schaefer wrote a book that was very significant to my spiritual life called, and and probably to many of yours as well, called True Spirituality. And I I have, um, I can't find my original copy of the book, and it's it's really sad because I had so many things underlined and so many notes. But in 1951, what gave birth to this book that is so significant on my life and probably many of yours as well and, and Christians all around the world Schaefer says this in the preface of that book. He says, in 1951 and 52, I faced, a pla- I faced a place of spiritual crisis in my own life. I'd become a Christian out of agnosticism. In other words, not knowing if there's a God or not. That's where Schaeffer was, and that's how he became a Christian, out of agnosticism for many years. After that, he was a pastor for 10 years. Then he was in Europe. And Schaefer says this He said, I told Edith, his wife, that for the sake of honesty, I had to go all the way back to my agnosticism and think through the whole matter of my faith in Christ. I talked to one of the professors, Phil Douglas, at, at, or I mean, he was talking to our class one time at seminary. And he spoke about his, his talking with Edith Schaefer and talking about that crisis time with Schaefer. And she was recalling it even then with tears that it was a difficult time not knowing how he was going to come out of this he struggled he struggled with his faith and what came out of it was a deeper faith what came out of it was labrie was his where, where many of you grew deeper in your faith the work of that struggle bore fruit and really bore fruit for this church Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them, and what did he say? Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. Some say, Stop doubting but believe, do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas. Think of the grace and the mercy there. First of all, it tells us that Jesus was hearing Thomas's doubts. Jesus was hearing Thomas's struggle. Who knows the way Thomas was saying it? Was he angry? Was he cursing? I don't know, but Jesus was hearing him. And Jesus came and met him in that struggle. I don't know why he doesn't meet all of us in the same way. And really, we don't know if Thomas put his hand in the side of the Lord. He may have said, I'm good. (laughs) I believe. And Thomas, the way he answered him and the way he gave proof of his belief, he said, my Lord and my God. John speaks a lot of the divinity of Christ, of Christ being divine. And, and, you know, the, the, the apostles, when they were... When people wanted to worship them, they said, don't worship us. We're men just like you. If an angel was to be worshipped, an angel would say, get up. But when Jesus was to be worshipped and called my Lord and my God, he accepted that worship because it was a true testimony of who he was and who he is. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's us. It's us. It's pretty much everybody who came after think about that it's not just us in the 21st century it's just about everybody see really Thomas had no history he had no eyewitness accounts aside from these disciples here but he had no history to look back on he had no writings of the Gospels and same with the other disciples Jesus was providing this eyewitness account So he could say, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. It wasn't necessarily a rebuke on Thomas. But it was saying the ones who see and don't, or who believe and don't see, will be blessed. So he gave us the peace. He gave us the proof. And now John writes about the purpose Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. I wonder what those were. Do you ever wonder what they were? And he says it later on, at the end of, at the end of chapter 21, he says, the world couldn't contain the books if we, if we tried to write down everything Jesus did. But these are written so that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, step out of our 20th century, 21st century world if you could. Because we read that and we think, yes, it's saying, we we want to turn it into, yes, Jesus is God. Now, John, John puts that in his writing. And I believe that, but I don't think that's the point of what he's saying right here. Do you know, if, if, if Christy and I decided to adopt a 10-year-old child, we'd be crazy right now. But if we chose to do that, and that child was, was, was at a home, and we went to that child one day and said, hey, we went through the court documents, we went through the court trials and everything, and you, Christy, and I are now your mother and father. Well, that might be that might bring some joy to this person, to this this child. But if you didn't know much about us, that joy would be limited. So let let, let me, but if we went to this child and said, hey, you're coming home with us. We're going to provide for you. We're going to protect you. We're gonna give you a home. You're gonna be part of a family that loves you unconditionally for the rest of your life. And by the way, we're legally your mom and your dad. It hits a lot more to the point. What John is saying here, John is not discounting the divinity of Christ. But what he's saying is to the people who have been longing, the people have been hoping, the people have been waiting for a Messiah, through through all the storms of these false messiahs, he's saying, listen, these things have been written so that you know your wait is over. The hope is now realized. The hope is for real. Because Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one you've been longing for. Forget all those false messiahs. This is the one. And because he is God, because he is divine in him, you may have life in his name. The longing and the waiting are over that the Messiah you've been longing for, it's Jesus. And he didn't just conquer Rome. He didn't just conquer your enemies. He conquered that which empowers every evil empire in the world. He's conquered death itself. Did that mean utopia? No. No. That's why he said in the world you're going to have tribulation. It was the beginning. It was the beginning of the new creation. But it was a hope that we could rest on. It was a hope that we can hang on. It's new life. And with that new life that he's given us, He's made us to be agents of the new creation that he started. Just as Adam and Eve were were made in the image of God to go and image God to the rest of the world. And because of sin and brokenness, they failed. But through Christ, this new creation is not going to fail because it's new life that comes from him and given to us. And therefore, he makes us agents of this new creation, agents to pray, agents to act, agents to go out and do what he has called us to do by imaging God and bringing the beauty of new creation to this world. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, we read it at Easter time, we'll probably read it again this Easter. He says, therefore, your labor is not in vain. I wish we would have sung that today. Too late. But listen, what you do in the name of Christ does not go to waste. Martin Luther was asked, what if you knew that Jesus was coming back today? What would you do? You know what he said? He said, I'd plant a tree. I would continue to build what Jesus has called me to do, to restore now I read this a couple of years ago, but I'm going to read this again because it's worth it. It is, it is a, a quote from N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope. And what he says in this work in, 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 as Christians, that our labor is not in vain, he says this. He says, you Christian, you follower of Christ are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown in on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, and almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself. You are accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, or for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces, embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that will one day... Make. That is the logic of the mission of God, he says. He overcame the world. He overcame the wars. Oh, how our earth and how our world is crying out for an end to the wars, to the brutality, to the death, to the culture of death. He came to overcome that. He came to rule over, to overcome disease and death itself. And while we're in this world, while we're sent out into this world, he gives us the peace that goes beyond all understanding. That even though we will, be, we will have tribulation in this world, we have peace in him. And he's given us proof through his appearance the, to the disciples, through the appearance of, of, of so many. Paul says he appeared to 500 brothers and sisters. And we have the four Gospels that are eyewitness accounts of the work of Christ and his resurrection. And all four of them talk about the new life of the resurrection. And we have the purpose. And now he sends us into that world as his agents to intercede through prayer to work as, as active agents to bring the rule and restoration of Christ into our world, into a world that God so loves, to declare the hope and expectation that all will one day be made right. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, help us to have the hope to look forward to Revelation 21 and 22. Make that hope real and alive to us, Lord. Fill us with the breath of your spirit that we may go out into a world of tribulation, but to spread the peace, the joy, and the love of Christ that you have equipped us to do. May we do that and trust you for it. In Christ's name, amen.